Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we're going to have a very interesting show covering a subject that is so very important to the listeners of A Better World and, of course, myself, and that's taking a look at those phenomena which we believe very much are part of human potential and looking at what has emerged as the science that is behind it, that actually corroborates the claims and the demonstrations of yogis, other spiritually oriented practitioners, and others throughout the course of time, literally hundreds and thousands of years, we have seen these aspects of human nature, of the human brain and the human mind in concert, working together to perform what today we actually refer to as miracles. Yet, so interestingly, with the power of neuroscience, with our current instrumentation, we have been able to uncover some of these phenomena and understand them in the light of science in a way we've never quite been able to do before. Well, one of the people that has been leading this charge has been Dr. Dean Radin, PhD, Chief Scientist at IONS, the Institute for Noetic Sciences. Dean has been a guest of ours here at A Better World some years back when his book, Entangled Minds, was first published. And uh, Dean is uh, truly uh, qualified, um, not the, there are many who are, to do this kind of rigorous research, which is otherwise so full of, uh, I don't want to say hacks, but I would say people who may not really know the full, fuller lay of the land. Deepak Chopra opens up uh, in his book, Supernormal, Science, Yoga, and the Evidence for Extraordinary Psychic Abilities with a very interesting line. And that is that the strange thing about the paranormal or the supernatural, the miraculous, and all other synonyms is that no matter how often you prove it, it remains unproven. It's just one of those paradoxes of human nature that even when it's before one's very eyes, one's belief system seems to have a ricochet effect that uh, throws it back into the trash bin saying, I know I saw it, but it doesn't seem possible. Well, for this reason, we really wanted to have Dean Radin back on A Better World to talk about this phenomenon and what he has managed to uncover that doesn't allow people so glibly and fluidly to go back to the trash bin, but to actually cognize the truth of what it is going on before our eyes and uh, see it in a new light. So, Dean Radin, welcome back to A Better World. A pleasure to have you. Thank you, Mitchell. Thanks for asking me. Absolutely. I I didn't want to spend too much time on your extraordinary background and resume. It takes so long, but it should be said that uh, Dean has been a guest on such shows as Oprah. He's been on BBC's Horizon and PBS's Closer to Truth. So uh, now you're on A Better World yet again, and it's really a pleasure. Mm -hmm. Uh, your work is so interesting. Uh, I've had the pleasure of uh, 
meeting with you also up at the Institute for Noetic Sciences and seeing your research lab and all of that, and you're you're really making breakthroughs. What do you see as the fundamental premise of the book, your latest book, Supernormal? Well, one of the ways of getting into the topic is I, I ask the simple question, was Buddha just a nice guy? And we could add, substitute Buddha for Jesus or Muhammad or any other famous religious figure. And the reason is that you can ask this question is that surprisingly, if you talk to religious scholars, these are people in academia who study religion, they'll tell you that the reason why religion maintains power over people uh, is partially the, the doctrine and partially the social aspects but the real core of it are the supernatural abilities that are associated with the founders of the religion. Mm. And, of course, these are the, the notion that uh, people have mystical experiences and that there are special kinds of abilities associated with that is is well known. But religious scholars, trained especially in the West, uh, have a, a worldview that disallows any kind of supernatural event. And so we have this paradox of people who uh, spend their lives studying religion and yet reject the underlying reasons for the religion in the first place. And instead, they will replace it with, well, people were primitive and superstitious back then, and some still are, and so it's simply wishful thinking, and that's what sustains religion. So when I ask the question, was Buddha just a nice guy, it is essentially saying, well, are the religious scholars correct? And is mainstream science correct in assuming that these kinds of phenomena are just superstition and nothing more? Or have we forgotten something that maybe Buddha and others and many other people uh, really did have exceptional capacities that uh, that we, we don't simply pay much attention to today unless it happens to you? So that's yes. that's the the premise asking the question. Fundamental premise. Now it is interesting Dean that uh such events as happened in Medigorje, Yugoslavia with the sightings of Mother Mary uh similarly mm-hmm. in Portugal uh back in was it the 19s or early 20s when the children mm-hmm. also had the sightings Fatima. These were events that involved many people, in some cases thousands of people, uh, mm-hmm. like in Portugal. And so so many bore witness to what we would otherwise call a miracle. Vatican does embrace the possibility of such things. Not the probability, but the possibility. And then they have their own team of experts to go and analyze the data, if you will. Could you comment mm-hmm. on that? How does that fit into the premise? Sure. So the Vatican has the Devil's Advocate Office, which is tasked with seeing whether a purported miracle uh, actually occurred. And, of course, they, these are field studies, and they they have to go after the fact and interview people and look at things if there's something to look at and simply make a determination as to whether or not they believe that there was something extraordinary that happened or not. And as you said, in the case of Fatima in Portugal, there were tens of thousands 
of people who eventually saw the the last episode of, of uh, Mary appearing in, in the sky. Uh, in that case, many, many people did see it, but some did not, which is very interesting. Some mm-hmm. people who were very skeptical saw it, and some people who were skeptical did not see it, did not see what other people saw. But if you look simply in a matter of consensus, was there a consensus opinion that something extraordinary had happened? The answer is yes. If if we believe that we can combine people's experience as being independent of each other, then something happened. The The challenge for science, though, is when you have these sort of spontaneous events occur, what do we make of them? We can go back and do interviews and we can talk to people, but... That doesn't carry much credibility or currency in science because we know that people tend to see what they want to see. And so eyewitness testimony is notoriously bad. People people don't see things that they don't want to see, and in which case, then what do you believe? Exactly. So, also, it's furthered by the, by the finding that most people's memories end up to be inaccurate by approximately mm-hmm. 50% when recalling um, items from their past. So psychiatrists are well aware of confabulation, which is what yeah. you're saying, that we will mm-hmm. we will twist our memory in such a way so that we'll be completely convinced that what happened is the way we, re- we remember it, but it may not have occurred. So this is yeah. why I, I open the book with this notion of was Buddha just a nice guy? But the way that I I answer it is to say, let's look at some of the historical documents in yoga, see what they have to say about these special abilities, but then turn to what science has learned about what it can study. So science is not very good at studying spontaneous human experience because it's always after the fact. Mm -hmm. It is very good at studying controlled phenomena in the laboratory because there we're asking for it on demand and under our conditions and we we know whether what the probabilities are of of events that occur and so it has a great advantage in that sense it has a disadvantage though in the sense that if you ask somebody to perform a miracle on demand in the laboratory mm-hmm. that the context of it is very artificial and so not very many people are going to be able to do spectacular anything in the lab, that means that you have to rely on many, many repeated people, uh, hopefully that have some talent, but sometimes just randomly selected people, to do many trials and and many people to get enough statistics to see whether or not the result is real or not real. In other words, you have to have many subjects and those same subjects repeating the the experiment many times to see any results. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, it's interesting. There's another factor I'd like to just bring in here and how what you have to say as you move on with this is that a lot of times the sense of the miraculous or people's ability to access these higher powers and love to hear what you have to say about this come from some kind of emotional experience or sense of passion or inner create spark of inner creativity. 
And that often comes from some kind of aesthetic experience. And a lab is hardly, with people walking around with white coats, hardly what you'd call an aesthetically arresting experience, as James Joyce would put it. So you're, in a sense, you've got a, a bit of a paradox going on there as well. That's absolutely correct, and that is one of the big disadvantages of studying spontaneous effects. Absolutely, so you, absolutely. You do so the best you that you can. Yeah. Well, right. you do the exactly. best that you can in the lab to simulate the the kinds of experiences in the real world that may evoke these kinds of effects. Uh, in the in the early days, the, they the methods were not as advanced as today, and. Uh, many people probably remember about uh, J.B. Ryan at Duke University who -hmm. developed the notion of using cards, just simply guessing at cards or throwing dice. And there was enormous amounts of data that were produced. It actually did convince many of the scientists of the day. We're talking about the 1930s through 50s. But then after a while, people forget that evidence. And if if you look in... Uh, Wikipedia today basically dismisses all of that work that was done for 40 to 60 years by Ryan and many other people um, because it, it happened, it's like ancient history and no uh-huh. one pays attention to so it, even though it was actually do, pretty good. So even though the science was good in your view today in the 21st century, because it's considered by subjective report antiquated, it's no longer held as valid. And also, very few people today have actually gone back to read what J.B. Ryan and others had said back then, and, and the, in particular to learn the history and the care that went into those kinds of experiments. But those experiments, uh, fortunately, are not the only thing we have to rely on. The, the methodologies have improved, and the experimental methods that are applied have been vastly improved since... Ryan's day. And mm-hmm. so today we're sitting on about 150 years of experiments. Uh, probably the last 20 years or so are much, much better in many ways than previously, but that shows a consistent effect. And so what, what we can say then, based on laboratory tests, and most of these with people who were not selected for any special abilities, mostly college sophomores, that if you look at large large groups of people from the general population, there's four effects that we know that are true, as best as science can tell. One is that people can demonstrate clairvoyance, that they can perceive things that are distant in either space or time. So a subset of that is precognition, where people can perceive events that are about to unfold, which cannot be inferred. Uh, There's a subset of precognition called presentiment, where you can show now that uh, using physiological methods that the body responds unconsciously to an event that's about to happen, even if you're not consciously aware of it. And then another category is psychokinetic effects or mind-matter interaction effects where one's intention uh, is impressed into the world in some way and causes something to change. So. These are phenomena that have been tested many, many times in the laboratory. The effects in general are quite weak, and it takes a lot of data in order to see it uh, reliably. But I think the weakness is primarily due to the artificial nature of the task and the fact Mm -hmm. that the people that are being selected for these tasks 
don't make claims that they have the, that they actually have the ability. So mm, the disadvantage here is that it means that it's difficult to uh, to levitate somebody in the laboratory and use that to convince people that there's a real effect going on. But yes. the the advantage of it is that we can say that the kinds of phenomena that we're talking about are in the general population. These aren't magic. It doesn't require special anointment or grace to to show these effects. They're there. They're simply as a, a part of being human, and actually it's not just humans, it's also in animals and probably insects even. I think mm-hmm. it has something to do with the nature of sentience. Being a sentient yes. creature, you have access to these kinds of abilities, most of which is suppressed by both social taboos, mm-hmm. by scientific Cultural. taboos, yes. and by our worldview, which makes it difficult to understand how these effects can be real. Yes, indeed. Well put. Now, you mentioned that clairvoyance, clairsentience, clairaudience are real, and you have been able to demonstrate that in the lab. Could you give us an example or two of what you have seen? Well, probably the easiest one to mention, and I forgot to mention telepathy is one of the areas mm-hmm. that we know is also likely to be true, Yes. And a very simple form of telepathy test would involve two people, uh, someone assigned to be the sender, someone assigned to be a receiver. You isolate them so there's no form of ordinary communication between them. You select a random picture out of a large pool of pictures. You give that to the sender, and you ask the sender to send the information in that photograph to the receiver. So the receiver has no idea what the photograph is, and actually the sender didn't know until immediately before you gave the picture what it was going to be because it was selected at random. Mm -hmm. And then the receiver, there are a number of different conditions where it could happen, but the receiver takes 20 minutes or so to simply think about whatever comes to mind. And then after the sending period, the receiver is shown four images, one of which was the real image that was being sent, and three decoys which all the pictures are different from each other as much as possible. So by chance, you would expect that the receiver would correctly identify the sent target one in four times or 25% of the time. Mm -hmm. But if it's more than 25%, especially if it's statistically more than 25%, it would suggest that somehow the receiver got something, got some information about the nature of the target. So this kind of experiment has been done for about four decades now, by at least 22 different laboratories around the world. And there are over 4,000 trials of this type, where one trial generally takes about 90 minutes uh, to to go through the whole procedure. So there's a lot of time that went into collecting these 4,000-some trials. And when you do the statistics uh, overall, and simply asking how many times did they correctly identify the target, it wasn't 25%, but overall it's around 32%. So the probability of seeing an effect at 32% rather than 25% doesn't sound like much, but statistically speaking, it's over a quadrillion to one. It's trillions and trillions and trillions to one, odds against chance. So there's basically no question that from that database that people do get a very small amount of information which they shouldn't be able to get under chance conditions. Mm 
So oh my. How does that probability so work? So each percent above 25% is worth about a quadrillion? No. In this case, it's because uh, if you have 4,000 trials, this is a very simple binomial statistics, by the way, that if you, if you expect a 25% chance of effect, and you have 4,000 trials, and the overall is 32%, you just turn the crank on the equations for figuring out the probability of that, and the probability is extremely small. And so you just turn the probability on, on its head to get odds against chance, yeah. and the odds against chance are then... Uh, many, many trillions to one against chance. So, so what that tells us, though, is yes. that tells that gives us confidence that whatever is going on is probably real. Uh, among the criticisms of these experiments is that uh, maybe people are not reporting studies that didn't work. This is so-called uh, oh. the file drawer effect. So, so yes. when we look in the literature, we're getting a biased effect because some studies that didn't work disappointed the investigators and they didn't publish it. But yeah, there are methods so now that, that it can be used. The results. Yeah. But how does that really stand up in I'm sorry? It it, it could, could skew the, the overall effect yeah. a lot, sure. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But you're you're it's going to ask Well, you know, even if that phenomenon is so, you know, that trash bin effect, so to speak, um mm-hmm. still in all sort of on its own merits, the tests that did get to publication showed Mm -hmm. these effects, the others notwithstanding. And so it seems to me that it has merit on its own. It has standing. The the counter to that would be that let's say that this experiment is only showing chance results. In that case, if you, if it's like throwing darts against the board or or throwing dice, you will occasionally yeah. get pretty remarkable effects, but purely by chance. So if you sure. only publish those those effects, then those, those looked interesting, but it was just a fluke. But fortunately, there is a way, a statistical way, to estimate how many studies are sitting in the file drawer that were not published. That oh, would be needed. Really? That would be needed in order to reduce the overall effect to zero. And so you, it's a simple calculation, and there are many ways uh-huh. of doing this calculation now to say if simply how many would be needed, how many studies would be needed. And the answer is thousands of studies would be needed in order to erase this effect. Mm-hmm. So this suggests that uh, there we, we have a pretty good idea over the years how many people have done these experiments and how long they take to do, and is it plausible that there would be thousands of missing studies, and the answer is no. It's not even plausible that that's the case. Mm. So maybe the overall result, if you took every possible test ever done, whether we know about them or not, and you mix them into together, is it still trillions and trillions and trillions to one against chance? Well, it's probably reduced because it's human nature that you, you generally are not very interested in publishing something that it didn't work, except sure. actually in parapsychology there is a concerted effort to get people to publish everything because of this problem. And parapsychology has done better than many other fields as a result in terms of publishing studies that did and did not work. You cannot get rid of the overall evidence, and you can use extremely conservative methods to try to estimate the file drawer effect and estimate other kinds of things that could introduce biases 
and you still end up with a real effect. So again, Always. we're we're dealing with yeah. artificial artificial experiments forcing people to do something psychic in the lab under our conditions when we want it. And overall it shows the results are pretty good. The question that we couldn't answer until 2005 was what happens if you get skeptics who who say that they don't believe any of this? They don't believe in any kind of psychic ability at all. They just don't buy it. What if they do that same experiment? Well, the reason why it comes up is because of the suspicion that maybe the people who are reporting the experiments are believers and they're not being very careful about it. Mm-hmm. So that's a legitimate concern. Well, in 2005, there were two uh, psychology professors who did publish uh, an article reporting in experiments that they did using the same kind of method with four targets, as I described. And they also would have a 25% chance effect, and they got a 32% result, which is exactly oh. what you found in the previous 40 years. In the telepathy, yeah. In the telepathy mm-hmm. experiment. And yeah. so this shows that uh, the result here is not due to bias of the experimenters. It's simply, it, it is what it is. So from a data perspective, from a purely empirical perspective, I think we, have, we can have uh, justified high confidence that some of these psychic abilities are real. And then that links us back to the question of, was Buddha just a nice guy? Because that yeah. question is asking, are any of these abilities that people talk about, are any of them real even a little bit? Mm-hmm. Since we know that the answer is yes, it suggests that some people, like the Buddha and others, uh, may have had these kinds of abilities to extraordinary degrees. And I think it is very likely that that was the case. Well, in your book, Supernormal, you go into detail about Pantanjali, who formulated uh, the various yogas sort of under one umbrella in many ways, and formalized it in a way that people could utilize and practice. And it should also be said in deference to our ancient wisdom traditions that these were not considered in our way today of practicing something we refer to as spirituality. This is, they were living, uh, these were lifestyles. These were also sciences in their understanding of science. And they were looking to experiment with themselves to see what types of uh, achievements they could realize inwardly, whereas so much of our science is very outwardly oriented. So I think it deserves to be said that we were dealing with a form of scientist in what we refer to as a spiritually oriented yogi today. So with that said, please, if you uh, disagree, I'd love to hear that. But I'd like if you would go into and comb some of that literature uh, in addition to Buddha Dean and what you have found in looking at some of the claims that have been made from there, from that literature. Well, I did spend most of the book looking at the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. But I do mention in there that virtually every mystical and esoteric tradition has not only talked about the same kinds of effects, the same in the, in the yoga tradition it would be called siddhis, which mm-hmm. is a Sanskrit term meaning uh, attainment or perfection, mm-hmm. somewhere between those two words. Yeah. Uh, 
but but all of the all of the religions and mystical traditions and esoteric traditions they all talk about the same set and including catholicism where they're known as charisms okay. uh, in fact you you can't be elevated to sainthood unless you demonstrate at least two of those charisms uh-huh. so this is it's well known at least within uh, religious literature uh that these these kinds of effects have been reported throughout history they were central to religion and they were probably the engine that made mysticism uh remarkable yeah it the reason why it doesn't fit very well within the western world today why there's so much skepticism about it is mainly as you were alluding to that our world view today is very very different we we've been inculcated with the notions of technology and the the underlying assumptions of science which is reductive materialism mm-hmm. it's a very powerful method it's been very successful in many ways but that technique that world view excludes certain kinds of phenomena from happening and among those that it excludes is precisely the reality of what mystics have talked about and what psychics talk about they're simply not All of these possible of years. yes yeah yes so, so this actually breeds a, a much larger world view uh in general and the potential of a particular human being and nervous system slash brain in particular you know well, it's. I don't know whether we as humans are all that different from humans ten thousand years ago. I mean, yes. in evolution. Moved, well, can well I don't quickly, mean that. I mean, the science is now giving a um, a support because we are Western, you know, left-brained oriented types mm-hmm. that want mm-hmm. what we refer to as proof, a uh, very different kind of proof than what was wanted you know, in uh, earlier centuries. And now you are providing so much of the evidence that corroborates what the ancient yogis and seers and sages have been saying all along. Right. Although it's it's true that uh, some of this science is beginning to converge with what the mystics have said forever. Uh, But we also need to be careful not to then assume that everything from ancient wisdom was actually correct because a lot of it is probably not correct. Very good point. Very good point. So Absolutely. what what uh, interests me then is taking the best of ancient wisdom and the best of modern science and making a, a new integration that is actually better than either one by itself. Mm-hmm. And it's not mm-hmm. easy because we don't know what the answers are at this point, but uh, can that kind of vision take place? I think the answer is yes. And that, in a sense, that's what the Institute of Noetic Science is, its mission. Its mission is to integrate science and spirituality to make something new and better and not simply assume that everything spiritual is real and correct or that everything in current day science is real and correct. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's let everybody know that uh, you are listening to A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. We are on every Wednesday at 6 p.m. and a few other choice times throughout the week here out of New York City. We are also on television in Manhattan every Monday evening at 7 p.m. 
If you're in Manhattan, you can just turn on the TV and play with the remote, or you can watch on our website, abetterworld.tv. If you haven't yet received our newsletters, A Better World newsletter comes out once a week. It's free. Love to have you part of A Better World community. Just go to that website and tune in. We are speaking today, Dean Radin, the author of several books, latest of which is Supernormal, Science, Yoga, and the Evidence for Extraordinary Psychic Abilities. Dr. Dean Radin is the chief scientist at the Institute for Noetic Sciences in Petaluma, California, beautiful place, that are doing extraordinary work having to do with just what Dean was saying. What is the interface of science with spirituality? with understanding consciousness. Dean has been leading the charge in this regard for some years now, as well as uh, teaching in a few other places. He's world-renowned for the work he's doing in bringing these two domains once together, then divorced, and now, I guess we could say, a remarriage of heaven and earth. One way of putting it, of science Mm -hmm. and spirituality. You know, Dean, since uh, Edgar Mitchell, the wonderful Edgar Mitchell astronaut, astrophysicist from MIT, was the one who founded IONS, uh, and you mentioned Rhine and the card experiments. Am I correct, Mm -hmm. or maybe you could help to elucidate this, that when he was on his way either uh, to or coming back from the moon, I believe he was the sixth man to walk on the moon. He's been on A Better mm-hmm. World, oh God, back in the 90s. Uh, he was experimenting with a few uh, friends, scientists, colleagues here on Earth uh, with telepathy while he was in the space capsule. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. That is correct, yes. Could you tell us a little yeah, bit and- about that, especially in deference to Edgar, who just recently passed? So I think if he is right. listening, he would appreciate the story. Yeah. So this wasn't a uh, an experiment sanctioned by NASA, uh, but right. something of, of Edgar's personal interest. And he did arrange for people on Earth to see if they could pick up cards that he was looking at in the, in the capsule. It was originally designed to be a telepathy experiment, but because Edgar was busy doing something else at the time that he had originally planned, it ended up being more of a clairvoyance experiment. So he did look at the oh, cards, and, but people yeah. wrote down their answers at a different time. Well, one of the things we know about clairvoyance is that it doesn't seem to be locked into space-time. It's, it's not, it doesn't happen in time. It happens outside of time somehow. Mm-hmm. That's why clairvoyance and precognition are basically the same kind of phenomena as is retrocognition seeing things that happened in the past that you weren't aware of before. Oh, so that the experiments yeah, the experiments were significant statistically, uh not in the direction suggesting that people were correctly getting what he was sending, but that they were significantly missing what he was sending. And this is in the oh. business we call this psi missing effects. And they're statistically just as interesting as psi hitting effects. And it suggests mm-hmm. that something something happened. It wasn't chance. Uh, it's just simply more difficult to imagine, well, why were they not getting it correctly, but they're actually almost as though they were actively avoiding the target. And so maybe it had something to do with the context of the experiment, or we don't know. 
but statistically speaking, it was a, a successful experiment. Isn't that interesting? And of course, that became uh, his interest and curiosity about this. Uh, you know, rose to the status of a commitment and a dedication mm -hmm. to the formation of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, uh, of which you're helping to continue and really advance mm -hmm. the scientific work for. I think it's just it's just wonderful. When you think about it, Dean, and look over the body of work that you have assembled over the years uh, in a few books, uh, last of which uh, is Supernormal, what is it that you yourself find most impressive with the data sets that you've gathered and the phenomena that has been reported as possible, but yet not having been proven until, let's say, more recent times? Well, I guess the, the, it's a very simple idea, ultimately, that some psychic effects are real. This, I mean, for many people, this is not a very shocking thing to say. For scientists, it's extremely shocking. It is radical to even yeah. suggest the idea that some psychic phenomena like telepathy and clairvoyance are actual real effects. Mm -hmm. From a mainstream science perspective, this what I just said is considered heretical and taboo. You're not allowed to say such things uh, <laughs> in public because it, the taboo against it is very strong and, and it will affect yes, your career. Yes. So among the, the things that have amazed me most as a result of getting into this well, field... it can affect. It can affect. However, you're pushing the envelope in such a way that it's going to become, um, and for some of us it already is, rather ludicrous to be doubting the science and even just intuitively commonsensically, if you will, doubt the possibility. From a, a right. larger quantum view, I think it, it, it's gotten to the point where, uh, at least in my worldview and those of many of my listeners, it's, well, it's more like, well, of course, just because we haven't discovered it yet and discovered the science doesn't mean it's true. Since when is mm -hmm. all reality defined by what happens and can happen in a lab? We're not going to allow our worldview to be squeezed down and contracted to that small context, even though it might be very important to a lot of people. That may sound a little silly, well, I, but you understand. No, no, I I completely agree with what you just said, that, that yeah. science does not know everything, and there are plenty of things out there that remain uh, deep mysteries. But speaking now as a scientist... And, and mm -hmm. the, the reason why I'm pushing on the science part is because science is extremely good at, at understanding the deep nature of reality. It used yeah. to be only philosophers who could do that, and they got as far as they could. But through empiricism and development of theory, we're able to go much farther into the nature of reality, which is why we have all our, our pleasant gadgets and televisions and <laughs> yes. aircraft and all that stuff. I mean, it, it, exactly. it shows us that we actually did learn something, that, that uh, <laughs> right. in Patanjali's time, Patanjali yeah. and Buddha didn't have an iPhone. Well, we have mm -hmm. one. So this we is have a, the an argument that, these days of both Newtonian and Planckian quantum physics. So, you know, right. there's a lot to right. celebrate. And it... And, and there will be many more advances in the future. Yes. But the worldview that has developed as a result of the, the power of science has, has gone in a direction which has pretty strictly excluded 
the possibility of these phenomena. So this creates a split in, in the general public and scientists. Uh, the general public and the majority believe in these phenomena because it happens to them or to people they okay. trust. Yes. Scientists have learned that even if it happens to them, they still don't believe it because scientists, like most people, are, are driven by what they have come to accept as true. And so if you're if you're heading towards a scientific career as a young student, you will either never hear anything about these topics, like it's never covered in any curriculum, or you'll hear a little bit about it, usually in psychology courses, uh, which just simply dismiss it as nonsense. Like don't don't even pay any attention to this because it's, it will ruin your career. Yes. It's and so you have off. many gener yeah. you have generations of academics who are are being inculcated into a worldview that excludes these phenomena. And unfortunately for them, people who buy into that story, uh, these phenomena are are there. They're simply a real thing that happens to people. And so someone who may not believe in a precognition will still have precognitive dreams, and they may not believe in telepathy, but it'll still happen to them. And then they're, they're kind of stuck because they know that they can't talk about it, and so they, they have to compartmentalize their personal life with their public life. And I see this all the time. So this like one thing that I've, I've, I've learned to my shock and horror mm -hmm. in, in the world of science is that privately, scientists are just as interested in this topic as the general public. The difference is that the general public is not too shy about talking about it, but scientists do not. They cannot talk about it. So it's the it's this brings the taboo into very high contrast for me, and that's the one thing that if I had if I could take my my whole educational career over again, I would have spent a lot more time very early on learning about the sociology and the philosophy of science. Yes, because it's, it's within those domains. That, that you begin to understand, well, how could scientists be so irrational and and be right. so restricted by this taboo? You could say, Dean, yeah. that if we could take out, this will be funny, and please know I'm saying this in jest, and I know you know that, we could take our magic wand and wave it over the body of scientists and say, you are now liberated from your limiting beliefs. We're not asking you mm -hmm. to believe anything in particular. We're asking you to rather impartially but benevolently look at all of the data. Please do so. <laughs> you know? Right. And Wouldn't I think there, there certainly there certainly are many open minded scientists who who could do yeah, that, sure. and I know many who've done it, and they they at least privately become convinced that there's something going on. Uh, it's still very difficult to talk about it in public until the the paradigm changes a little bit. So that's you know, I think I that's wanna, what we're looking yeah. forward to. I I think so too. I I want to say just uh, in my role as a holistic psychotherapist and working with people uh, psychosocially for the number of years that I have, we see a phenomenon that is actually analogous, which is that uh, in my work, of course, I, I help to facilitate shifts in attitude, behavior, reactivity, and the like, communication skills, etc. And mm -hmm. it hasn't happened once that notable changes have occurred in clients over time. They don't see it. Others do. 
So they are mm-hmm. quick to say it's not true. Nothing happened. I'm the same. But objectively, i.e., their friends, their family, their co-workers, their bosses have said, oh my, it's so nice to see so-and-so blossoming. The sense of humor has increased tremendously. Their sense of well-being is obvious. It's showing through in their face, dot, dot, dot. But they themselves don't see it. So it's a phenomenon that shows up actually across the board, not just in strict science with the subject of parapsychology, but really uh, in many domains in our lives. So if I could just kind of even things out in a way by making that statement that this is an aspect of human nature and not one of our more laudable ones, it might help to ease some of the stress and strain uh, that you've been dealing with as a, as a pioneer in this, in this domain, and I should say also right. in this dimension. So you, the good you, news you see, is, oh, sure, sure. The good news is that the, there are signs that the paradigm is indeed changing, and you can see this in many ways. And, and one, one approach is to say, uh, ultimately, what I'm interested in, what, what we've been interested in from the beginning at, at uh, IONS, is about the nature of consciousness. Well, when ions began around 42 or 43 years ago, mm-hmm. nobody was studying consciousness except maybe some philosophers interested in the mind-body problem. Well, today there are numerous conferences, there are numerous academic centers for consciousness studies, there are yeah. journals, mainstream journals on this topic. So that is pretty good. That means that within about 30 to 40 years, you went from basically nothing to an acceptable topic to study. And that is a huge shift. And in the process, in the process of now making it acceptable for people to study consciousness and meditation and mind-body medicine and all of these things that were considered laughable 40 years ago, Mm -hmm. uh, you're finding that there are more and more people who are actually paying attention to the data because previously they didn't. And you're finding then that more and more academics are becoming very interested in the notion that, well, maybe some of those ancient mystics weren't making it up after all. And maybe some people talking about this psychic stuff is not just wishful thinking, but something else. And that is something, even in the limited amount of time that I've been working in this field, I see a dramatic shift. So I think we're we're in the midst of a paradigm change. Uh, It may take another 30 years to come out the other side, but that something is happening, I think, is quite clear. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, I understand. When you look at the larger picture of the work that you have done now for some decades in this field, what – I'm sort of rephrasing the question I asked before. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm looking at this phenomenologically, if you will, not – socio uh sociologically and psychologically or even historically for that matter but rather as you look across the field at the studies that you have done and that your colleagues have done what are some of them that you have found to be most impressive to you personally you're talking about specific studies is that what you're asking? Yes, a phenomena that you have that you have seen. Yeah. Oh, well, I think like many people, I've had uh, spontaneous 
uh, synchronicities that are dramatic and some psychic events that have been dramatic. But those, mm-hmm. to me, are, are interesting, but not really. they don't really grab my attention. What grabs my attention mostly is when we mm-hmm. set up an experiment in a laboratory and we see a result that confirms what we were hoping to see. And that includes things like uh, presentiment, which is probably one of the most dramatic effects. Uh, this is an unconscious physiological effect. We've measured things like skin conductance and heart rate and pupil dilation in the eye and uh, and blood pressure and pulse rate and all kinds of things, and even um, in brain waves as well, before, during, and after randomly timed stimuli. And what you see in these experiments again and again, and many colleagues have seen it as well, is that the the body somehow knows, and I interpret this as meaning that unconsciously we know what is about to unfold, even under conditions where you can't know by any ordinary means. So, so that's these are important experiments because... that you did at IONS. I, I remember you were telling me about this, where mm-hmm. in a person will know ahead of time. Does this... Uh, does this relate at all to the work done at Princeton with Roger Nelson and the no. work of the sensing of global phenomena through sentient no. experience? It does not. No, no. Right. I mean it's a different it's a different class of experiment. What you're discussing okay. is the Global Consciousness Project, which is all about yes. uh, collective mind effects in the world, and we've done that as well. We continue to do mm-hmm. that. But mm-hmm. the presentiment experiments are looking more at unconscious forms of psychic ability, and in this particular case, the ability to see through time. So okay. that is that's yeah. a challenge. I mean, it's, all of these are challenges to how science currently thinks about the world. But this mm-hmm. one is particularly troublesome for many scientists because it suggests that uh, our understanding of time, and particularly of causality, is incomplete. Mm-hmm. And we rely oh, on causality for we rely on causality for our explanations about how things work. You, you probably know that in the medical field, the mechanism of action of a drug is basically the thing that you always look for. Why did why did this technique or drug work? And the the underlying implication of that question is there must be a series of causal steps that make this drug work or make this procedure work. So causality is is deeply tied into our way of understanding how things happen. And the moment that you suggest the idea that a future event can actually influence you now, it it turns causality on its head. And so this makes a lot of people very uncomfortable even though, from an experimental point of view, it looks like it's true that the present mm-hmm. is the present is influenced by the past, but it is also influenced by the future. Got it. And what I just said is is actually some areas of leading physics today. What I just said is exactly the mm-hmm. same as they would say. Now they would talk oh, about it in terms yes. of movement of elementary particles and in very deep physics. And what we're seeing then is basically the same thing, the future affecting us now at the level mm-hmm. of human physiology. Phenomenal. So, it's, so it, in this, please, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Okay. I, I was going to ask, I mean, 
in a sense, I, I can only use my own vernacular, not as any formal scientist. But what I'm hearing you say is that there's a a dimension we could say of nonlinear time. It's not sequential only as we think about it, but there's another uh, dimensionality to it that ordinary science doesn't take into account. And that you could almost say, I know in neurolinguistic programming we talk about collapsing time where everything mm-hmm. is happening at once, if you will. So what we perceive on a timeline as past, future, and present is not really only the only way. The idea of a strictly uniform direction of time, it's the so-called arrow of time as specified by the thermodynamics, is not sacrosanct. It, it is what's common, but it doesn't necessarily have to go in that direction. So our notion of how do things work, what is causation about, is more really about correlations between events, it's relationships mm-hmm. between events, but not strictly that one thing has to follow the other in a in a, a given sequence only. Yes, yeah, exactly. So, so it's actually causality becomes... Uh, there are multiples of cause, not some kind of singularity of cause, but rather, uh, I don't know. It's an, actually, it's more like um, gestalt, if you will, in the true German meaning of the word, uh, sort of a uh, everything happening at once. It's a... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can it's see a why non-linear people... It, and it's, it's difficult to wrap your head around it, because the moment right. you Even imagine, language it. yeah, yeah, our, our, all of our tenses in our language assume that there is yes. some linear time, uh, and yes. yet the phenomena that we see in the laboratory and leading edge physics are saying that that is essentially an illusion. It's a pretty powerful illusion, and it works yeah. most of the time, but it's not, <laughs> yeah. as I said before, it is not sacrosanct. It is not carved into right. stone that this is the only way things can go. You know, one of the roles that you're playing, Dean, if I may say, is uh, that you are really helping in a very healthy way, I would say also, to disrupt common myths, common assumptions made by scientists who, based on the language, should be open by definition to inquiry and to knowledge. Not set knowledge, but knowledge that occurs through inquiry and inquiring mind, and we know through other work, uh, through other traditions, say, of meditation and contemplation and what occurs when the brain becomes coherent, when, thanks to the work largely of HeartMath, the Institute of HeartMath, the heart becomes coherent. Another level of understanding and, say, connectedness shows up. It occurs as an experience, and it seems also that this equates with lower uh, uh, brainwave activity, which seems to be the space of, correlates here, since you use the word, it's so appropriate here, correlates with greater uh, insight and creativity, so-called lower alpha theta waves, and a place of, let's say, just great fecundity, great fertility of mind, where people, you know, Niels Bohr in a dream 
saw what he saw, which gave rise to an entire uh, spurt of science that we live with to this day. And we know of phenomena similar that have absolutely um, been part of our entire larger historic scientific tradition. Well said. I'm that's, listening. That's what I'm. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, no, I, no, I. That's what would I. Would you say? That, that, I, I well, I would say pretty much what you said. That the yeah. uh, part of my interest now at this stage of my career is simply encouraging tolerance within science for yeah. truly innovative ideas. And so you see every so often the National Science Foundation, National Institutes of Health, they put out grant proposals or prizes for truly innovative, high-risk, high-reward, disruptive, paradigm-shattering <laughs> research projects. Yes. What they mean by that are they mean very tiny evolutionary steps. Yes. I mean, so the so everybody views radical change in very different ways. From a, uh-huh. these government programs, they view the the amazingly innovative, high risk, high reward as somebody making a tiny little advancement, which is not that far from where we currently are. Yes, but from, right. From, main, from a mainstream okay. perspective, it's it's it could be perceived as being a new step forward. When we make a proposal, I would say, okay, we're going to do something which is truly disruptive and paradigm-shattering. We're going to study precognition or mind-matter interaction or telepathy. Yes. Those, our, our proposals are dismissed instantly because it's so far outside of the existing paradigm that they're considered to yes. either be impossible or something that, that just simply doesn't fit. But I think, as we were saying before, that the paradigms are changing. They're changing I think, faster as time goes by, driven largely by developments in physics. And at some point, maybe 10, maybe 30 years from now, calls for that kind of innovation will then accommodate these kinds of effects. So I'm optimistic about it. I I, I am too, and I like that. In fact, I'm thinking of uh, an example, a living example, living, breathing example of uh, the work of Candace Pert who worked for the uh, National Institute of Health. And Mm -hmm. she's the author of Molecules of Emotion, which is Mm -hmm. essentially a treatise on the relationship of mind and matter, emotions and matter. Uh, The work of cellular biologist Dr. Bruce Lipton in The Biology of Belief and the effect that belief systems have literally on our molecules and even uh, epigenetically said on our DNA. I mean, mm-hmm. how much more radical can you get from the existing paradigm? And yet, I mean, let's say in the circles that, that you and I hang out in, you know, these are considered to be rather normal, to play on the word super normal, uh, ideas at this point. They're, we've right. become accustomed to them. We've, they've become our consensus reality, if you will, you know? Mm-hmm. It's true, and it, if it's being a pioneer is always a little difficult because you're ahead of your time. And yeah. if you're lucky, you'll live long enough to see that the paradigm has changed. If you're not That's lucky, right, which you know. you, then you don't. <laughs> There's always the phenomenon. I'd love to see this statistically mapped out just for fun of slipping through the cracks, that even though there's an existing paradigm, that paradigm is also just 
a thought at the end of the day and it's only a conversation Mm -hmm. among, let's say, many people, true. But if you can shift that thought and shift that conversation and just open it to a larger field, if you will, larger field of influence as well, you know, you before you know it, you've shifted the ground of the scientific inquiry to a much larger and you could say more generous one. You know? Yep. That's kind true. Of interesting. Now, yeah. I, I'd like to ask you, I know we're running out of time here, but if I, I would really love to ask you this, uh, that based on the work you have done, you have come to another level of understanding also, Dean, of human physiology, of human neurophysiology. Uh, does it make sense to you? That, I mean, I'm sort of probably asking this question backwards, but maybe you can help me with it. Does it make sense to you now knowing that these phenomena, clairvoyance, clairsentience, telepathy, precognition, presentiment, on and on from the ancient times as well as in your lab right at IONS, uh, exist? Does it make sense that the, that the physiological hardware, if you will, is there to uh, actualize, metabolize, and even further this kind of phenomena? And then, is this possible just for the few Buddhas among us, or do you believe it would possibly be for everyone because it becomes a hardware question, and let's say a belief question? Well, those are two questions, at least two. Yes. Actually, that's You're that's right. an hour and a half worth of answer. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to ask you to collapse time a little bit. What can I do? Yeah. So, <laughs> okay. okay, so Start I would with say... what you can do and answer what you can. Right. So I would say that uh, by virtue of having self-awareness, having a, a bodily system that provides self-awareness, uh, we have the capacity to, in principle to have access to these kinds of abilities. But... A combination of evolution and modern life conspire against us. So evolution conspires because in order to not be eaten eaten by the tiger, I can imagine that a large portion of the nervous system has developed in such a way so that we're very good at paying attention to right here and right now. Like we, we scan the environment, we get a very good and very fast snapshot of whether there's anything threatening nearby. And when you do that, you think about the nature of attention, it's hard to attend to that and also attend to other things at the same time. We know now that when people multitask, they're much less efficient than if they focus on something. Mm -hmm. So that's simply evolutionary pressure that has has shaped us in such a way that normally we're in an, an ordinary state of awareness where we're paying attention to what's here and now. And if we're not there... We may be in a reverie state or fantasy or something of that sort where we're not paying attention to the external world. We're kind of inside our head. So where do these psychic effects show up? They show up in non-ordinary states, like states that are explicitly not interested in here and now. So that includes states of dreaming, uh, certain drug-induced states, states of meditation, wild dancing, ecstatic drumming, all of those kinds of things. Shaking, yes. Uh-huh. Right. So that suggests that 
our physiology is actually getting in the way for most people most of the time, which is why these things mm-hmm. only occur spontaneously in most people. There are some people who just through natural talent have a slightly different nervous system, just like elite athletes have different kinds of muscular systems, different kinds of cardiovascular systems. There's a person who lives near near where I am in San Francisco who can run continually for days and shows no sign of, of pain or exhaustion even. He's an ultramarathoner. Well, if you ask a normal person to go run a marathon and then run another one and run another one and like like run five or six in a row, it will kill them. Even if they've trained a lot, it will still kill them. But there are people who are essentially mutants of various types who have different (laughs) kinds of bodies and allow them to do different Uh things. And the same is true in the psychic domain. So some people will be very, very good at this and never have to practice and just do it. And I suspect yes. it's because their physiology is wired somewhat differently. So the second part of your question is, well, can we all learn how to do this? The the, the body is wired differently. However, the fundamental parts, nerve fibers, brain, prefrontal cortex, all of that is in common. There's a common denominator. It's been developed or given with different levels of development. Right. But even among these commonalities, there are always going to be differences. And you see this very dramatically when people are asked to take certain drugs. Like some people will have the side effects and some people won't. And some people yes. will work really well with and other people does nothing. So mm-hmm. every doctor knows that the differences among people can be extreme, even though they look the same, the Anatomy is approximately the same, but people are very different. So Psychobio individuality. Exactly. But even with those differences, is are there ways that ordinary people can improve their abilities? The answer is probably yes. And it's based on the little bit that we know primarily about what's happening in the brain when people are being psychic. And and there's two hints, two clues that come up again and again. The first one is that the frontal lobes have to be inhibited. You have to turn off the thinking, planning portion of your brain in order to have access to this because it's precisely those frontal lobes that evolution has pushed so that we're always paying attention to here and now. and We're we're planning and watching and so on. So you need to turn that off. The easiest way to turn it off is through meditation, because one of the effects of meditation is that it, it inhibits frontal lobe activity. So that's like step one. And step two, the other clue that we have is that a lot of these phenomena are associated with right temporal lobe activity in the brain. So the right portion of the brain is more closely associated with uh, form and function and color and feeling and so on, as opposed to the other hemisphere, which is more associated with language and analytical thought. So you turn off the frontal lobes, you increase activity in the right uh, temporal lobe, and that seems to be a more compatible, at least from a brain perspective, a more compatible condition to be in in order to be psychically sensitive. And meditation will do both of those. This is basically, I think, why you look at something like Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, 
the, the whole yogic process was ultimately one of meditation. And if you meditate long enough, perhaps you do change the, the functioning of the nervous system uh, sufficiently so that you become very, very sensitive to these kinds of abilities. Well, That's you what have the cities are all about. That. I mean, you have observed physiological changes occur over time in meditators. Uh, yes. And have you not? Yeah. Yeah, it's not actually not work that we have done, but it's it's very clear in the in the meditation literature that that does happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 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 As well as I know this brings us to another place, but the uh, rather famous experiment that was done by the TM movement uh, on the effect of meditation on levels of violence that occurred in Washington, D.C. one famous summer, several summers Mm -hmm. ago. And they had a very strong, I would say, correlation, you know, to be on the conservative side about it, uh, between those states in people located. I, I don't know if that was a distance or remote or that was local. I don't remember right now. Do you, do you recall? The meditators was? went to Washington, D.C. So it was local in the sense that they were in Washington, okay. but yeah. they were looking at crime statistics in a large area. So it wasn't, yes. it was distant in the sense that they weren't right on top of criminals, for example, they were in a hotel yes. somewhere. Yes, yes, yes. Exactly. So you're going to answer the other part of the question. Well, the other part of the question is, well, what does the average person do in order to improve their abilities? And the the easy answer is you meditate. You do it diligently. It probably doesn't matter too much initially which type of meditation is used. What matters is that you do it. And what the other thing is that if you specifically are meditating in order to develop psychic ability, you probably going to be deflected a little bit because that shouldn't be what your goal is. Like the, the yogic traditions make it very clear that you will bump into certain cities as a result of meditation. Some people will get much better at it than you will, but everyone will have experienced something. But if you do experience those, those kinds of effects, then you shall not talk about it. So the taboos even exist within the the yogic traditions. Only there, it wasn't a matter of that they don't exist, but rather the concern that if you do begin to dwell on these kinds of abilities, that it will inflate your ego very quickly, and you will yeah. become Darth Vader. <laughs> that's what yeah. that, that's essentially what that character is all about in Star Wars. Yeah. That someone has the power and they are seduced uh, by the power and they they go bad. Mm-hmm. So. There are te- both scientific taboos and yogic taboos that uh, prevent the display of these kinds of abilities to a large extent. There's like almost a, a moral imperative. Yeah, well, at least an egotistical imperative. Don't don't do that. So maybe yeah, exactly. the, the human humans need to mature as a species to be able to keep ego in check. And at that point, mm-hmm. then you can demonstrate it, but only but but in our current state of affairs, it would not go well. I'm wondering. Yes, I I appreciate that. Uh, I, I guess part of the first question I asked was, have you been able to see changes in physiology between the people who were more adept at 
parapsychological phenomena distinct from the more, you know, with all due respect, more ordinary physiology? And well, if a so, few, what are those differences? Yeah, a very few clues. We we I can't give a a, um, a confident answer on that because we we just mm-hmm. don't know yet. But the clues that come up are, as I said, it's an inhibition of the frontal lobes, activation of the right temporal lobe, uh, a more or less monochrome EEG. And what that means is that somewhere around alpha, some like seven or eight hertz, sometimes nine hertz mm-hmm. brain waves. Uh, that's where most of the power is. You get this spike of power at one particular frequency. Now, we don't exactly understand why that is, but a number of the top psychics have had unusual brain waves, which suggests that they're extremely coherent on a few a few frequencies. Uh, the reason why we can't go much further into figuring out what does that mean is because the the EEG signal doesn't really tell us very much about why the why these effects are occurring. We're just seeing resonation res, resonant frequencies within the brain at a particular mm-hmm. frequency. So maybe it suggests that there's more coherence among different portions of the brain, something like that. But ultimately, yes. we don't know what that means. It's just a clue that there's something about that this monochrome, very high uh, power at one particular frequency that a lot of psychics have shown. In terms of other forms of physiology, Mm -hmm. and when the U.S. government was doing its program of psychic spying, known as Stargate, they spent quite a bit of time doing every kind of psychological and physiological test and medical test that was known at the time to see what, what makes a difference between a really good remote viewer and somebody who wasn't, and they found nothing. So maybe with today's methods we can do a lot better, uh, but there, there's not enough money around uh, to be able to take the best of the best and to submit them to all of the various tests that we can do today. Uh, but at least as of 20 or 30 years ago, there was, there was no difference found at all. Again, with a few clues, some minor personality differences from people who are adept at this versus people who weren't. Um, a couple of things, perhaps, in brain waves that were different, and so on. But in terms of, of gross anatomy and all the rest, no difference at all. You know, it would make sense to me that there would be some uh, change in chemistry. I mean, one thing is measuring brain waves, and I think that's fabulous, and coherence. Another is actual blood chemistry or uh, the storage of certain chemicals in organs heart, liver, kidney. I don't know. I'm I'm just absolutely supposing, not with mm-hmm. unnecessary knowledge, but it seems that there would be, and there could even be the accumulation of different kinds of minerals that show up in, in the mm-hmm. body's chemistry. I don't know. I think that there's something, you know, because minerals are electrically related, uh, with charges, with identifiable and measurable charges, that they would have mm-hmm. some interface with the development and cultivation of the nervous system that would have a greater um, possibility for this kind of farther reaching of human mm-hmm. possibility. You know, I'm yeah, I'm just brain, part of the expression brainstorming with you because it's sure. so much fun 
to do that with you, you know. Um, you know, there's another phenomenon, Dean, that you brought to mind as you were speaking about the uh, 8, 9 hertz alpha frequency. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's the work of Dr. Richard Davidson on Tibetan Buddhist monks, wherein he showed that they were, in addition to the alpha and theta waves, they were also emitting gamma waves, which seemed to be that three, correct me if I'm wrong, like above 25, 30 to 40 um, hertz. How do you, mm-hmm. uh, that, that always threw me for a loop in understanding the phenomenon of alpha and theta in respect then to those at the other end of the spectrum. Well, some people think that uh, around 40 hertz is associated with consciousness, with the with self-conscious, self-awareness, in which case oh. if you're a Buddhist monk and meditating or a Tibetan monk for a long time, that your sense of self-awareness is much larger than the average person, and so then they, they have this higher magnitude gamma effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, that study, by the way, uh, it's still not completely sure that that study was due to the brain alone because there, it, that high-frequency measurement could also be due to muscular activity in the scalp itself and in the, in the oh. front of the face. So. Oh, it's still controversial that uh, the gamma, I mean, we know that gamma frequencies exist. You can measure it, but yeah. they're usually pretty weak. They're quite weak. So uh, we we have been working with a few people who do show very high levels of gamma. But even in our studies, we're not completely sure that it's due to muscular activity or to the brain itself. Oh, it's, it it's very difficult to tell. what are called artifacts, so to speak, yeah. Interference yeah, I mean, if you do a, a, a minor um, uh, contraction of the corrugator muscles in your forehead or in your jaw muscles, it produces high frequencies, which, if you're not careful, can look a lot like what is called gamma in the brain. So this this is an artifact that simply it's difficult to extract from the rest of the signal. Got it. So, Got it. so, so there may be a marker and may not be a marker. Yes, I hear you. Well, that's an interesting way of uh, considering that, mm-hmm. which otherwise looks aberrant, you know, to, well, I'm not a trained scientist, so I don't fully know how to uh, regard it. But that does m- help me make sense of what seems like uh, a phenomenon in the other direction that I couldn't right. quite understand. Well, I've got to tell you, yeah, please. So what one of the things that we're doing... To, to answer your question in more detail is we're doing a genetic mm-hmm. analysis of people oh. in families who report psychic ability, typically mothers and daughters, sometimes mothers and grandmothers, identical yes. twins, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And it suggests that there's a hereditable aspect, a genetic aspect that may be involved in these kinds of phenomena. Uh, so we're we're doing a study now where we're identifying people in families who have psychic ability, and we'll do a full genome on them, and then do a kind of uh, a bioinformatics analysis of the genes to find if there are constellations of genes, and we're talking about hundreds of genes that may be more prevalent in people who are psychic than in people who are not. I, I suspect that there is 
some genetic component because there are, certainly are legends of stories uh, or of families who have these abilities throughout the family, and I've encountered many people who yes. say that. Uh, so yes. it's, it goes to the question of nature versus nurture. Uh, if a family nurtures people's natural ability, then people might actually be more psychic because they're allowing themselves to be. Sure. Uh, but the, the question is also, is there a real genetic component? And if there is, then it would suggest that there actually are underlying physiological differences in people that maybe have been too subtle for us to see before. But if we see the genetic changes, then it will give us a clue about where to look specifically. Yes, yes, yes. And it doesn't rule out the epigenetic phenomenon either. It could be right. that, you know, because the nature of what seems to be so is that our genetic makeup interfacing with our lifestyle and even decision-making is a two-way street. So right. we don't know if it's it's going to be a tough thing to measure, after all. Well, that's why we need to find people who are psychic and use them as the test case. Because you're right, if we find that there are certain constellations of genes that are associated with these abilities, well, there are methods that can be used, potentially, to turn on those genes, to make the genes mm -hmm. express in people who mm -hmm. where it's not expressing, and ultimately and you can end up with a pill to take that will make you psychic for eight hours. <laughs> yes. Or something like that. I mean, at this point, it's a science fiction yes. scenario, but it's it's conceivable, I think. Well, you know, maybe it's not so science fictional because um, the ancient shamanic traditions of Africa, Australia, South America have been using such, I like to refer to them not as drugs, but as sacred and shamanically sanctioned plants, the way Terence McKenna taught me to think of them, uh, where mm -hmm. the... Uh, Biochemical components of such things as ayahuasca, uh, mescaline, peyote, and others have this kind of uh, biochemically activating effect. Right. Some of them come in the form of a pill. That's right. You know. So, so the, the, the goal here would be yeah. the goal would be to create something that is psychoactive in the sense of changing what you're able to do subjectively but not yes. introduce hallucinations at the same time. That yes. that would be the trick. And I, yes. I I think it's possible that we'll we'll eventually figure out some way of doing that uh and and end up with something some sort of technology that allows people at will to become much more psychic. But that said, the moment that you think about opening yourself up to to experience the rest of the universe, you had better be prepared for that. So I'm in the midst of writing a, a book now. Where I'm, yes. uh -huh. the, the book is that I'm writing now is all about how to how to improve psychic ability, and at least half mm -hmm. of the book is going to be on uh, maybe you shouldn't do this. Because yes, I hear you. It, yeah. The emotional maturity aspect of it, in other words. Yeah. Exactly. Correct. Psychological. Yeah, this, you, know, you know that equates. No, uh, please. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Well, that equates with the traditional understanding uh, in Kabbalah, which was only a mystical chapter in a person's life that opened when a person has gone through uh, the bumps and grinds of daily living in 
their profession, in their trade, in their craft, in their family, of dealing with the difficulties of emotional adversity, hardship, Mm -hmm. and being able to cultivate patience, perhaps compassion, benevolence in the face of adversity. That was considered to be the necessary ground before someone could open and be able to um, handle, as you're referring to, um, mystical or psychic um, abilities and worlds. I, it's exactly. very much in parallel. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, and it, it make, kind of makes sense that whether it's it a, a tradition of Kabbalah or a yoga, that they're kind of going in the same direction. Uh, and so the fact that they end up with similar uh, restrictions and constraints and advice makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Another thing I'm thinking of, Dean, as you were speaking of the genetic uh adventure you're going on now, I think it's great, is uh, probably one of the first books I ever read on the subject when I was a wee lad, about 14 or 15. And uh, interestingly, and probably by no mistake, uh, one of my mentors back then was one of the original funders of Institute of Noetic Sciences, Paul Temple, with whose daughter mm-hmm. I was very friendly and I grew up with her in uh, in Westport, Connecticut. And uh, he really was helpful to me. Uh, he may have even recommended the book. That part I don't recall. But it was about close families, members and families, mothers and daughters, mothers and sons frequently, uh, and twins, who were able to sense in each other when one was in usually trouble or pain beyond space. It didn't matter what the space was. They were so sort of resonant with each other that they could pick up on another's distress beyond space. So I was wondering, that would be another kind of variable to control for as you go forward in those experiments on genetics and heredity. Right. 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 So that's part of our challenge in finding the candidates for whom we'll do the full genome analysis. Ideally, we would find a single family of nine people, say, and all of them are psychic. Mm-hmm. That, that would provide a great, a great way of looking at the common genes. Uh, yeah. I don't know if we're going to find that or not, but we're going to do a worldwide search for such families and see what we end up with. That is fascinating. That is fascinating. Well, Dean Radin, I want to just thank you so much for being a guest today on A Better World. Uh, it's such a better world because of your work, and I really, really appreciate it and what you're doing. In closing, would you like to just share some final thoughts that you would like our audience to to contemplate uh, before we have you on again in the future? So they might be able Uh, to become a little bit more psychically attuned or mature or both? No, I guess I would just say, uh, was Buddha just a nice guy? Uh, The answer is um, maybe he was a nice guy, although he did leave his family and children in order to go out searching and wandering in the world. So from that perspective, he wasn't such a nice guy, but it seemed that he turned into a pretty nice guy afterwards and probably a lot more. And so then that was the key. Was he just a nice guy? Well, no, he was more than just a nice guy. 
and probably to to everybody to some extent can learn to be more than just a nice person too through these mm-hmm. abilities in fact it's very clear to me when i talk to successful people in business and government and the military and ask them well how did you get to where you are the common refrain is that they learn to trust their intuition and their intuition is extremely good so I would cast that, I would spin it a little bit and to say, well, you know, have you ever had any psychic experiences or things that you would consider to be psychic? And in private, they will say yes. And in public, they'll say no. So these things happen. We just uh, sometimes yeah. need to be quiet about it, but also be open to it. That's right. That's beautifully said, Dean Radin. Beautifully said. Thank you again for being on today and uh, sharing your thoughts with us. And our audience. You're welcome. Thank you. We'll talk again soon. Absolutely. Okay. So, Dean Radin, author of Supernormal, Science, Yoga, and the Evidence for Extraordinarily Psychic Abilities, or Extraordinary Psychic Abilities. Feel free to go to our website, abetterworld.tv. You can see, uh, uh, get the link to this show, as well as you can actually buy his books from our newsletter right there on our website. And I want to just thank you all for joining us today. My name is Mitchell J. Rabin. We're on every Wednesday, as mentioned. And, of course, always these days people like to listen in archive. That's great. Share it with your friends, with people who you think should know and have access to this kind of information, to all that Dean was sharing as a, as a very rigorous scientist, really very conservative and Inside that conservatism, he has opened up worlds, volumes, if you will, of a new way of seeing and thinking that can really help elevate the human conversation. So it's one of the reasons he's just truly one of my favorite scientists and favorite guys, and we love having him here at A Better World uh, because I love sharing this kind of knowledge with you, this kind of inquiring mind. So remember also to visit us and get on our newsletter at abetterworld.tv. And remember that we are a nonprofit. We uh, are able to sustain and thrive based on your kind donations, contributions to us. So that also is available at abetterworld.tv. I also so appreciate your feedback on our shows and on things in general. And that's at mjr at abetterworld.net, mjr at abetterworld.net, or reach me by phone for my work, 212-420-0800, consulting, counseling, and the like, communication, stress management, biofeedback, etc. So thanks again, and I look forward to speaking with you all next week.